This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Happy Thanksgiving weekend after. Uh, Last week, we talked about uh, Fix the Damn Roads. Uh, We had the County Road Association on. Uh, This week, uh, we're going to go to another big hitter in the uh, roads, bridges, and uh, highway infrastructure department. We're going to go to the Michigan Infrastructure and Transportation Association. Specifically, we're going to talk to Lance Beninimi. Uh, he is vice president for government affairs, uh, at, uh, what is called MITA, M-I-T-A, Michigan Transportation, uh, and, uh, excuse me, Michigan Infrastructure and Transportation Association. Lance, are you on? I am. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Look, uh, fix the damn roads. That's what (laughs) we heard all year. That's the uh, battle cry that comes out of campaign 2018, I think louder and clearer than any other. And, uh, the roads have been being fixed the last uh, couple of years, and they're expected to, uh, get fixed faster and better, uh, in the next couple of years, uh, the way the plans are right now, but maybe that's not enough for a lot of people here in Michigan uh, how do you see things right now from your standpoint at MITA? Yeah, for uh, for our standpoint over here at MITA, um, you know, we uh, we we got right behind the governor elect uh, in her fix the damn roads uh, campaign. We think that it's time for uh, us to come up with solutions that are going to be longstanding and uh, sustainable. And you know, we are uh, doing a lot of repairs on our roads. The 2015 road package that was passed that isn't even fully implemented until 2021 uh, is helping, but. You know, we said it at the time that it passed, and we've said it since. It, it wasn't enough money to uh, uh, get rid of the deterioration of all of our roads in the state. We are still going to see the, the decline in overall percentage of good and fair roads, even with the influx of the $1.2 billion that came from the 2015 road funding package. Well, moving forward, uh, what is, in your view, uh, from Midas' point of view, the best way to move forward and get the extra funding that you need? I, I, approximately, I guess, $1.2 billion in addition to what you're going to be getting anyway. What's the best way to do that? You know, we certainly believe that uh, your traditional user fees uh, and increasing those user fees are the way to fund our transportation network. Uh, that is done throughout our entire country. It's done throughout the world. Uh, traditional gas tax, traditional registration fees, uh, and toll roads are really your best way to capitalize those who use the roads the most, uh, pave the most for the roads and the repairs on those roads. And so, you know, we have, uh, we, you know, when the legislature passed a, a seven and a half cent gas tax increase in 2015, um, gas actually went down uh, a month after that by more than 20 cents, I believe. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not our gas tax that increases our prices of our motor fuel. It's, it's the volatility of the market. And so why we didn't pass a 15 cent gas tax or why we didn't pass a 20 cent gas tax in 2015 um, was 
really beyond us. We didn't understand it, but at the time, given the makeup of the legislature, we thought that was the best that we could probably do. If you listen to legislators, individual legislators, of course, they've all got different takes on what should be done, how it should be done. I know State Representative Peter Lucido in Macomb County, and he's uh, State Senator-elect Peter Lucido. He'll be taking a seat in the Senate beginning in January. He believes that Macomb County, uh, Michigan's third biggest county, is uh, being victimized by the present uh, formula that distributes uh, revenue. Uh, he's is trying to come up with a plan that he contends will require no tax increases, no bonding proposals. He thinks that if counties were allowed to simply keep the revenue that comes from uh, gas consumption in their individual counties, keeps it right there, doesn't send it to the state to be redistributed in some way, shape or form, that that would really solve the problem. It might solve Macomb County's problem, what it would do in the rest of the state is unclear to me. What do you think? Yeah, and we've had several discussions with Representative Lucido, and, and, and we've had many discussions with all lawmakers, and I think uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, almost uh, to a T, every single lawmaker believes that we need to invest more into our infrastructure and into our roads and bridges. Uh, it's how we do that uh, is where we have the debate and where we have the, the disagreements. Um, you know, PA-51 has been around for a long time, um, and it has been amended hundreds of times since that. Um, we can have a debate uh, of whether or not uh, one county is getting less uh, than they believe is their fair share uh, over another county, but you know, I think the simple fact is, is changing Public Act 51 isn't something that you can do rather easily. Uh, I, I come from the legislature. I worked in the legislature from 2000 to 2004, and you know, at the time, we had a proposal in the committee that I ch- I staffed the chairman for to change Public Act 51 um, because they believed in Southeast Michigan they were not getting their fair share. Well, you know, the other counties throughout the state believe differently. Uh, and until you have more votes in the legislature uh, who believe they're not getting their fair share to take over the votes that believe they are getting their fair share, we're not going to change that, uh, that really solution. Um, on top of that, you know, there is not a single study out there that doesn't suggest we need at least another billion dollars or more in our roads and bridges. Just shifting money from Osquito County or uh, whatever other county that you know the Southeast Michigan reps believe they're uh, being unfairly treated by uh, means that there is less money in those counties as well. And so we need to grow the pie. We need to grow the investments that we're making. Um, and if those investments uh, are being utilized in other areas more than uh, Southeast Michigan, then then maybe we need to change look at changing the formula, but we need to get back to talking about increasing investments before we talk about any distribution. What about bonding? Uh, Gretchen Whitmer talked in the campaign when pressed to uh, come up with the method by which uh, she'd like to fix the damn roads. Uh, she talked about bonding. She even invoked uh, the uh, Mackinac Bridge back in 1957 and said, you know, this is an example of various uh, different competing uh, entities and 
the state getting together and burying the hatchet and coming up with a way to bond and raise the money to build the Mackinac Bridge. And she says, well, we can do this again. Uh, how does bonding work? I mean, there are provisions in the Constitution for short-term bonding and for long-term bonding. And as I understand it, I mean, the Department of Transportation at the state level can actually bond to a certain extent without uh, a vote of the legislature. Uh, what is the prospect for bonding being able to be a solution to the problem? Yeah, you know, you are absolutely correct. The the Department of Transportation and and you know the the administration does have uh, a little bit of uh, ability to do some some short term bonds um, to leverage some of their bonding cap- capabilities that they've already been granted. Um, but you know, we have to remember that we are already throwing a couple of hundred million dollars uh, of our transportation budget currently to pay off some of the long term bonds that we put out in the nineties. And so, you know, for us at MIDA, um, bonding could be uh, a solution, um, but we want to make sure that if we are looking at long-term bonds, um, what are the revenue sources that can fill uh, those bonds? Because, quite frankly, some of those areas are just kicking the can down the road. Um, But I think Governor-elect Whitmer and uh, MIDA both agree that there are several different opportunities here uh, and several different ways in which we can fund, fully fund, long-term and sustainably our roads and bridges in Michigan. And if one solution doesn't work, I think just like Governor-elect Whitmer, just like MIDA, we'll look for another solution. We got to take a break here, but we'll be back in just a minute with Lance Beninimi, and he's Vice President of Government Affairs at MIDA. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back talking about fix the damn roads and we've got an expert here somebody who's been around the lansing scene for a long time really knows his stuff lance beninimi uh he is vice president for government affairs at the michigan infrastructure and transportation association mita as it's called um Lance, I think you were talking about, you know, funding sources uh, going forward. Uh, I just uh, remind you and our listeners, uh, there was a a ballot proposal back in May of 2015 put there by the legislature statewide ballot. Special question, proposal one, raised the state sales tax by one cent with most of the money going to roads, bridges and Uh, highway infrastructure and so forth, but with a lot of other stuff in it on education and earned income tax credit, et cetera, et cetera. And the voters hated it and they voted it down 80 to 20. It was the biggest defeat for a ballot proposal in 70 years. And uh, I don't think we want to go there again. So where do we go, Lance? Yeah, you know, that certainly was uh, a lesson that uh, I think we learned at MIDA. And, and I, you know, that wasn't a proposal that, you know, MIDA put on the table. I think that was a proposal that we had four uh, leaders uh, and a governor back then who really wanted to figure out on how to get the votes, uh, including our governor-elect, 
uh, how to get the votes out of their caucuses uh, to get something done on roads. And, and unfortunately, uh, they came up with a very complicated solution that, you know, I've had this conversation trying to reflect here now uh, over the last few weeks. And, you know, it, it took someone 20 minutes to a half hour to finally understand exactly what the proposal was actually <laughs> doing. Um, and, you know, in this day and age where, you know, the 24-hour news cycle and social media and 30-second sound bites, you know, trying to describe a proposal, you know, in 20 or 30 minutes, you've lost someone. Plus, on top of it, you're trying to tell them that you want to raise their taxes. And so it, I think it was, you know, it was, a, it was an uphill battle, to say the least. And uh, I think we learned a lot from that. And um, I think the biggest, the biggest thing that we learned uh, in that whole uh, scenario was if, if, if we're going to ask the voters to invest more in our infrastructure, which, you know, polling suggests that voters are willing to invest more, it needs to be very simple, it needs to be for our roads and bridges only, and it, it can't be touched by politicians. It has to be constitutionally dedicated, and it has to be a very simple, we're going to raise this much, and we're going to put it towards these items. What about the catastrophic claims fund? I think Representative Lucido and others have suggested that could somehow be raided or reconfigured or something and that there's money in there that could be used to fix the damn roads without resorting to tax hikes or bonding proposals or anything else. What do you think? You know, without getting specifically into that, because I've, I've, we've, we've had legal experts tell us that it possibly could be done. We've had legal experts tell us that there's no chance that that money can even be touched. Without getting into the specifics of that, you know, I think there have been many people who look for a silver bullet in this scenario, in this problem. And um, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of people, very intelligent people, um, much more intelligent than myself, who have looked at this issue, who have tried to come up with that silver bullet or that magic uh, wand to figure out how we can do this as painless as possible without trying to ask for more investments from the voters, and it's just not there. There, there is no. If there was a silver bullet out there that we could just do in a heartbeat that would not be painless, the legislature would have done it decades ago. Is there any chance you think of getting a two-thirds majority vote in each chamber for some other kind of bonding proposal that could go on the ballot that people might buy? Is that realistic uh, to expect if you're governor-elect Gretchen Whitmer? You know, I think I think that the opportunities are endless here. I, there's not. There's not a chamber, there's not a party, there's not an administration right now in Michigan that doesn't want to fix the road problem. We've had honest conversations with, you know, the, the speaker-elect, uh, Chatfield. We've had really good conversations with Senator, or Senate Majority-elect um, Shirky, and, and, and I can tell you both of them want to come up with a solution um, to fix the damn roads. They might not say it that way, but at the end of the day, they want to do what's right for Michigan, and they want to invest properly into our infrastructure. And so I, I do think that there is an opportunity um, for, the, for the individuals to come together, and I, and I hope 
you know, this is our message to all the incoming lawmakers. It's our message to Governor-elect Whitmer. You know, there are good ideas uh, on both sides of the aisle. And I think if, if, they, if they go to their constituents, uh, if they ask their voters uh, and they really talk to them, their voters will tell them, we want you to find a solution. We don't want to hear why the governor-elect's uh, proposal is terrible. We don't want to hear why the Senate Majority Leader's proposal is terrible. We want to hear that what solution do you support and what solution are we trying to get through. And, and, and if we look at this issue a little bit less politically, uh, because we know that roads don't have an R or a D on them, but if we look at this, I know I'm being a little bit, uh, it's the day before Thanksgiving, so I'm being a little bit, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in a joyous mood, but, uh, and maybe naive. But if we look at this not politically, I think we can come together. So, yes, I do believe that there is a chance that there could be a two-thirds majority on, on a potential solution to put towards the voters. In the meantime, uh, roads are being fixed uh, slowly but surely. As you said uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, what the legislature did in the fall of 2015 didn't really start to kick in until 2017. And I think you said it kind of really goes into high gear in 2021-22. And yet, recently, we had uh, a hiatus, a suspension of road uh, construction activity in late summer, early fall because of a standoff between, uh, I think, your organization, MIDA, and the Operating Engineers Local uh, 324. Now, that was resolved. I guess my question is, I'm asking you a whole bunch of questions at once, but, <laughs> but you can take it from there. I mean, is, is, are we back on track? Uh, or are they going to have to suspend a lot of work that should have been done, would have been done uh, by now um, until after the winter uh, because of yeah. cold weather? Uh, what's going on? We, yeah, we did have a we did have a two week impasse, two and a half week uh, impasse uh, with the with the union, and um, for a variety of reasons that that I won't get into. But um, in terms of the road work, the vast majority of the work uh, uh, is is going to be fully completed and uh, and taken care of. There there are probably a couple projects that uh, and a couple contractors that are out there that that knew that they were taking the risk that they would be you know there there could be potential penalties uh, if they didn't. And get their jobs done that are they're really hoping for 50 and 60 degree weather here in the next couple of weeks um, and I think today is a, a good example they can get some road work done uh, today but you know at the end of the day if a, if a project isn't completed by the end of the year uh, it will be safely buttoned up uh, the traveling public will not notice any different uh, but the project may be delayed a little bit but we're, we're we haven't seen any specific project sets that uh, are are uh, are of concern they they're coming up against uh, uh, mother nature right now but uh, they're they're uh, in good spirits that they're going to get them done okay listen i wish we could talk longer honestly we could go on and on and on and uh we'll be back i mean i'd like to have you back at some point because i know something's going to happen on this lance ben and Amy, vice president for government affairs at michigan infrastructure and transportation association has been our guest thanks so much lance thanks bill You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back and we got another special guest here. This is a a woman of many parts, uh, a 
dominant figure in Lansing, uh, particularly in politics and government over the last several decades, even though she's very young still. Uh, uh, Kelly Rossman McKinney uh, is on the line. Kelly, how you doing? I'm great. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. And look, I understand you're actually down in North Carolina, and I want to know why have you fled to North Carolina for Thanksgiving? (laughs) Aren't the turkeys big enough for you here in Michigan or what? (laughs) There are plenty of turkeys all over. Uh, My mom and my sister live in Charlotte, and so this is where we go every Thanksgiving. And this year, we rented a beautiful Airbnb on a river that's just uh, absolutely delightful. It's the first time all of us have been able to stay in one place, as opposed to, you know, being at a hotel and all that kind of stuff. So it's really fun. Oh, that's fantastic. I was down in North Carolina this summer, but I was way over on the coast in Wilmington for a couple of days. Yep. And that's where the hurricane hit this fall, so I just escaped in time. Uh, but uh, this sounds like a delightful family tradition you've got going down there, right? It is. And, you know, there are actually several Michiganders who live um, in the North Carolina area. Uh, Bill Cedarberg lives up in uh, Asheville, as does, um, oh, the former CEO of Sparrow Hospital, Joe, um, oh, I'm blanking on his last Yeah, I, I know who terrible. you're talking about, yeah. yeah. So do you see them? Do you see any of these Michigan people when you're down there from one year to the next or not? Nah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> they probably got their own family tradition. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now the Kelly Rossman McKinney story. Now tell me, you're not a native of Lansing, but you came to Lansing, what, back in the 80s, was it? Uh, I started working up in Lansing in 79. I actually... Um, grew up in Portland, Oregon. My dad was a reporter and a columnist for the first, the Portland Oregonian, and then we moved out to Detroit. He was with the Detroit Free Press, and I finished high school in Detroit. And then he went on to the Charlotte Observer, and I stayed in Michigan and uh, went to college, worked in TV for a while, worked for Bill Kennedy and Lou Gordon, Oh boy! Channel Fifty, real icons for those wow. of us who are baby yes. boomers. Um, and then I uh, ended up in uh, uh, Battle Creek, and I started working for a guy who was a total—I mean, total—dark horse candidate in a six-way Democratic primary for state rep was to fill Paul Rosenbaum's seat because Paul was running for. Uh, U.S. Senate, U.S. Senate, Senate, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. This is um, Richard Fitzpatrick? Yeah, it was Fitzpatrick, exactly. So he wins this, you know, six-way primary, and then he's running against the president of the Battle Creek City Council. Nobody knows who my guy is, and my guy went. And so I came up, I commuted for almost a year before moving up to Lansing, and I was his legislative secretary. Okay, so he served, I'm trying to remember, like six, eight years altogether? I I think at least. I worked for him for about three years, and then I went over to work for Basil Brown. But um, Fitzpatrick tried to uh, pull off a coup 
when Gary Owen was running for speaker. And I think that was the beginning of his demise. And I can't remember what year that was. I think that was in 84, after the 84 election. Yeah, the Republicans sounds, uh, sounds, narrowed sounds their margin right. of uh, minority status. And he tried, uh, Richard Fitzpatrick, to cook up a deal with Republicans and a handful of Democrats and topple Gary Owen as speaker and take over. But it backfired. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so uh, you work for Basil Brown, then you decided at some point, right, to start your own public relations firm? Oh, yeah, that was years later. I actually, from uh, from Basil, I worked briefly for the Township Association, and then the Blanchard administration called me back, um, asked me to be press secretary for the Michigan News Corps, which was, one of the most amazing experiences I ever had in state government. And then I was, I stayed in state government a total of 10 years before I started my own firm in 88. Wow. And, and, uh, that was in the old house on North Washington. Is that right? When I first started the firm, it was at my kitchen table in my house <laughs> over on, over by Sexton High School. Yeah. On and the west then, side. I moved into, you've been to that house. You've yeah, 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 yeah. From, yeah. The, great, from um, the Great Lakes News Center. We then, when I finally got an office, I made a deal with uh, Dave Lalamia, who was head of the Michigan Association of Community Mental Health Boards. Right. They owned the great big house next to the old YMCA. And they... Um, they own the house, but they didn't have anybody on the second floor. And I didn't really have money to pay rent, so we bartered. And in exchange for PR services that I provided to them, I had an office. So I was there for a couple of years, and I was over next to the Retailers Association. Gosh, then I was over in the Pierre Marquette building that Jeff Patton Owns, you yeah. know, the one across from Claris. Yeah, right. I didn't realize you moved around yep. that much. You really moved around. We, yeah, I did. And then we bought the house at uh, 920 Washington, where uh, practical political consulting is now. Right. And, and so. And we were there for several years until Truscott and I joined forces. Right. Now, you and Truscott uh, merged finally after how many years were you in the house in North Washington? Like maybe ten, uh, 10 years? Yeah, at least I was there at least 10 years because uh, John and I merged in 2011, joined forces actually right. in 2011, and I think I moved into that house in 97. Right, so uh, Truscott was located in the uh, old, uh, you know, huge Michigan National Bank building. It's uh, the Boji right. Tower the now. Boji Tower. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's, so you got out of the old house and joined John Truscott in the Boji Tower in a renamed firm, uh, Truscott Rossman, right? Right, right. Uh-huh. Okay. And so you have been very f- successful there. And then finally, uh, you did something uh, really pretty daring uh, at this particular juncture uh, of your career. You decided, okay, I'm going to actually run for office, right? <laughs> yes, I did. And and what I truly did? What impelled you to do this at this particular time? So 
So I was at a really good place in my career. I was definitely at the top of my game, but Bill, I've been doing that. I've been a PR firm owner for 30 years, and I really felt like I had more to give and more to do. Um, And my office in the Boji Tower looked over at the Capitol, and I watched over the last several years as the quality and... um, really commitment to statesmanship uh, in our legislature had uh, begun to diminish and and really diminished significantly. And so I was really starting to toy with the idea of we got to, you know, we need better candidates, candidates who are truly committed to public service. They're not just in it for their career, et cetera. Um, And then uh, Tom Leonard, then Speaker of the House, proposed an income tax rollback that would blow about a billion-dollar hole in the state budget with absolutely no plan for how to fill that hole. And I viewed that then and now as the most egregious political move I'd ever seen and the biggest affront to taxpayers. I'd ever seen, and I was compelled to run. I I believe strongly that you either shut up or step up, and I was in a position to step up. Okay, well, we're going to pick up on that in just a minute. We're going to take a short break. We're with Kelly Rossman McKinney on the other line, enjoying Thanksgiving in Charlotte, North Carolina. is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We've got a special guest here for the last segment, uh, Kelly Rossman McKinney. Uh, She tried to escape uh, to North Carolina for Thanksgiving, but we collared her in uh, Charlotte. Uh, That's not Charlotte. That's how we pronounce it in Michigan, but they pronounce it maybe the way most people do, Charlotte. Um, and, <laughs> and Kelly, uh, you were describing uh, what you saw as a deterioration in the quality of of uh, legislators individually and maybe the legislature as a whole uh, over the years. Uh, was part of that term limits or not, or were there other factors? I I view it almost exclusively as term limits for the following reasons. And and I'm one of the lucky people like you who saw what the legislature was like before term limits, where certainly people had their partisan colors, but they left those partisan colors at the door. They rolled up their sleeves and they got to work for the people of Michigan. Um, In addition, these people had the time to develop strong, long-term relationships, friendships. They also had the opportunity to really build an understanding, a knowledge base of the issues in which they excelled. So you're, um, for example, Basil Brown, my boss, chair of the Judiciary Committee, he knew the law inside and out. Uh, same with um, folks like um 
Harry gasped appropriations. He knew appropriations inside and out. There's no way any one individual under our current system can begin to acquire and build that knowledge base. And there's certainly no atmosphere or environment in which um, that collegiality is encouraged. Right. Well, flash forward um, and pick up on what you were talking about in our last segment was you decided I'm going to run. It's time to fish or cut bait here. (laughs) I've got to do something about this. I'm going to run for office myself. Now, you ran as a Democrat. You live in Delta Township, which is just west of Lansing in northeastern Eaton County. Uh, it's the 24th state Senate district. It's an open district. Um, and uh, you are running in a three county area, which includes all of Eaton, um, all of uh, Clinton, all of Shiawassee counties, and I think a little piece of uh, northeastern Ingham yep. County around Williamston. Yep. Yep. And uh, you're running against a, an incumbent uh, state representative, uh, a Republican named Tom Barrett, who had served two terms in the House. He was from Eaton County as well. And you knew it was a uh, Republican tilted district. Um, and nevertheless, you plunged in and you said, I'm going to, you know, take a shot at this and I'm going to give it my best. You raised a heck of a lot of money uh, from what I understand. I think he did, too. And I just want to ask you, just what, how do you look at your overall experience uh, now that you've been through the entire campaign and what happened? I, I loved it. I, I really did. It was, don't get me wrong, it was um, exhausting both mentally and physically. And uh, I was talking to my sister last night, who's a district judge here in Charlotte, and we were talking about how hard campaigns are. And she said, are you glad you did it? And I said, oh, absolutely. She said, I have a theory. Life's a grand parade, and I want to ride on every float for just a little while (laughs) to have these different experiences. And the thing is, Bill, if I hadn't run, I wouldn't have seen some of the amazing communities that make up the 24th district. I mean, Shiawassee County gets cut up and recut up and it gets put in people, you know, it's, it's in a whole different media market. So it's um, attachment and relationship with the Tri-County area is pretty much non-existent. But they have um, wonderful communities. And um, were it not for the race, I probably would not have ventured to Owasso and met all the wonderful people there. Ditto for, you know, places like Eaton Rapids or St. John. It's not that they're far away. It's that they're just not sort of in your sphere. Yeah, they're not in the capital bubble. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I loved talking to people. I loved going to door, door to door. I loved speaking with people. I loved touring farms and learning about things like yield contests. I mean, I had a ball. I had an absolute ball. Well, and I'd, I'd do it again, but only after a lot of rest. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you suffer any injuries or dog bites oh, going my. door to door or oh, what? Oh, my God, you name it. I had... Uh, 
I fell down a flight of stairs a couple different times, and that's just, that's what I've understood to be a typical campaign thing. You turn around off a porch and the stair isn't there, whatever. <laughs> I had a stress fracture. Oh, boy. And so I had one of those boots on for about six weeks. Oh, my And then uh, Sunday before the um, election, I was walking the mean streets of Bancroft in Shiawassee County. Oh, Bancroft. And, yeah. uh, and um, I was literally in the street, not on property, and a dog that was in a fenced-in yard decided he didn't want to be fenced in anymore, and I looked like a great target. So he kind of backed up, blew right through the fence, and charged me. And I thought I was doing a pretty good job staving him off, and all of a sudden he... He had me in the uh, uh, back of the leg, my calf, so oh. I got quite a Ugh. quite a wound there and went through the rabies shot because we couldn't find the dog. Ugh. But I kept doing doors, by golly. I moved my car, and I finished my list of doors, and I went to the Burns Grange chicken dinner, and then I went and said, oh, that's a bit of a bite there. <laughs> oh, boy. You, you probably... Come on, you've done... You've done campaigning. What's the worst thing that happened to you when you were campaigning? Yeah, I don't think anything as bad as what happened to you. <laughs> you, you, you <laughs> suffered some serious injuries there. That, that was not good. Uh, well, let me ask you, I mean, how did you yeah. feel the campaign was going? Did you think really on the eve of the election you had a chance to win? I, I actually did. Um, three different polls the weekend before um, the elections, three different polls, all independent, uh, showed that I was neck and neck with, um, with my opponent, it, but that I was um, very likely to be the winner. So it was quite a surprise and, yeah, a disappointment to not just lose, but lose by, you know, nine points. Not fun. No, but, but that's um, kind of the normal. That's kind of the normal spread. And Tom Barrett was not a weak opponent. I mean, he had experience. No, he had a uh, background as a you know Iraq War veteran and uh, military, and he'd been in the House two terms. So he was a tough opponent, and uh, he took you very seriously all the way. I think he, he did take my candidacy very seriously. I think initially the Republicans thought that I was some lightweight who wouldn't work for the seat, and they found out exactly the opposite. And you're right. Uh, my opponent had uh, has a, a great backstory, military, helicopter pilot, and things that I thought really would matter most to voters in terms of things like uh, being opposed to um, mandatory vaccines, being opposed to economic development incentives that really would help um, gin up our economy, being opposed to a prevailing wage, all of those things that should matter to voters never seem to gain any traction. And we did not run a negative campaign. We were very positive. We did one contrast ad to compare and contrast the two of us, and that was it. Did you have any debates? Did you have any debates or joint uh, candidate appearances? We had, there were a total of, I believe I participated in a total of nine or ten candidate forums. He attended three of those. Huh. Wow. 
he didn't go to the League of Women Voters. He didn't go to the um, Ingham Intermediate School District. There were there were a couple others, but we did appear together in Charlotte, in um, Owasso, and then at a um, regional school superintendents meeting. Uh, and it's you know what I here's the thing. Um, I really like Brett Roberts, who was uh, Tom's opponent in the primary. In the Republican just, primary, yeah. Yeah. I just never really... Warmed liked, up to Tom. Yeah, I just don't... I just don't... <laughs> yeah, that's a good description. I've never warmed up to him. Okay, well, we've got to cut it off. Unfortunately, All we right, could keep Sharon. on going, but you've got some uh, turkey to start working on there, preparing the bird. Thank you very much, Kelly oh, Rossman thanks, McKinney. You were a great guest, and happy Thanksgiving. Oh, the same to you, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye.